0: Welcome to Rethinking with Alex Torpy. I am your host, Alex Torpy. In this series, I'll be drawing on my experiences as a non-party affiliated mayor, town manager, student, graduate professor, entrepreneur, consultant, and emergency management director and volunteer EMT to help give us a critical, nonpartisan, thoughtful, authentic space to examine some of the real root causes to the most important issues around us. We will question everything, and I hope to provide us a platform to rethink our minds, communities, republic, and even our existence. You can check out the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and online at rethinkingwithalextorpe.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the nonpartisan series on Running for Public Office. Uh, I am your host for these videos, Alex Torpy, um, and thanks for checking out Rethinking. Now, in the following videos, we cover a basic overview about running for public office. These videos are not exhaustive, nor are they definitive. There's much more detail involved in running campaigns than presented here, and what follows is not the only way to do things. However, for those of you that are interested in learning about running for office or trying to find a good place to get started, I think these videos can serve as a really helpful jumping off point. Now in the following videos, I'll be joined at various points by a couple people. One is Aaron Strauss Garcia. Um, Aaron and I met in 2011 when he was one of the first couple employees at Nation Builder and when I was running for office in South Orange. Now there's a much longer story here, um, but we ended up going into business together um, within a year after that, uh, both were managing partners, both of us were managing partners uh, at the company I founded, Veracity Media. Uh, Aaron has worked on many political campaigns and with many nonprofits on building out campaign and communication strategy, um, which he's done as an independent consultant and a global strategies group. Um, he's also was a field organizer um, for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, I'm also joined in one of the videos by Brandon McCoy. Now, aside from being president of New Jersey policy perspective, where he's done some really interesting things to try to bring more evidence-based discussion into the political discourse in New Jersey on a number of important social, uh, racial, fiscal, um, economic issues uh, in the state and nationwide, Brandon and I are both from South Orange. Um, And when I ran for office in 2011, he was one of the first people I told and was there helping put the whole thing together from the very beginning, so we reflect a little on those experiences. Now, before we go into anything further, I wanted to create this video to break down some of the primary assumptions people seem to have about running for office. These are ideas that I've come across in a few different capacities, um, and I'm sharing the background context so that you can be fully aware of what has or has not gone into all the thoughts that follow in this video. Um, Transparency of context is important, I believe, in something that I discuss in some of my other podcast episodes. Now, the following information I've learned not just from running for office myself um, and from consulting and working and volunteering on a number of campaigns over the years um, and from working with a number of leadership development organizations that worked with candidates running for office, but also from feedback that I've gotten from teaching, from consulting, And some original research that I did in 2016 and 2017 um, to help design a program called Pathways for America, Um, and that was a nonpartisan program aimed at helping people figure out their civic pathways and ultimately encouraging people to run for office, which it did for a few of them. Uh, For the research for that program, uh, I interviewed nearly 100 different people, including dozens of people who've run for office, and many who decided not to. Um, I'm mostly going to use my own experiences um, in office as examples in this video, Um, but if you're interested in hearing what other people have to say and some of their reflections on some of these questions, um, I really suggest that you check out the interviews um, in this podcast. You can find all of them um, on YouTube um, and on RethinkingWithAlexTorpey.com. Most of them are posted to uh, the podcast stream on Spotify and Apple, Stitcher, Google as well. Now, again, what follows in this video is a good summary, but not an A to Z guide or a deep dive of some of the issues, assumptions, cautions, and questions I encountered throughout all those different experiences. Um, Hopefully, debunking and clarifying some points will help you approach this topic with more complete information. Again, this is not meant to be an A to Z guide, but rather some points that will hopefully be helpful uh, to hear about as you do your own thinking about all of this. And these experiences and ideas are not going to be perfectly applicable to every situation. Uh, For example, some of this won't be as complete. uh, If you're thinking about running for office in a big city like New York or Chicago, or you're running for the United States Senate. Um, However, I still think that even for those races, there's going to be some helpful information to chew on here Um, and as you get down into some of the more local races, this is going to become kind of more and more, uh, complete. Um, so just make sure to keep that context in mind, um, when you're taking all this information in. Now, I don't think it's unintentional that many of the assumptions people have about running for office end up discouraging people from doing so. That's how this system is designed. And if you want to hear more about that, I suggest checking out episode four and five of the podcast. This episode and this series is specifically meant to help support you in thinking through whatever is best for your own goals based on the specifics of your situation, which, of course, uh, I don't know, although I'd love to hear about them. So if you're watching these videos and thinking about running for office, please do uh, get in touch with me and let me know what you're up to. Um, Now, there's going to be a bunch of resources included in the notes and available online at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. For example, organizations that you may want to follow up with so that you can find more support um, in whatever your plans might be. For example, if you're thinking about uh, running for office. So in this first video, I'm going to debunk the top 12 myths that I've heard about running for office. Um, In the next video in the series, you'll find uh, Aaron and I discussing some really important questions that you should be thinking about um, when running for office. Um, There's a lot of reasons to do this, but there's also a lot of really important uh, challenges and a lot of really important things that you should be considering early on. And then you'll find additional videos that will help you um, think through some of these things going on in the series. You can find the full series list on YouTube and on my website. Okay, so that is enough uh, introduction and disclaimer. Let's jump into this topic here. All right, myth number one, I have to belong to a party or be part of an existing slate or power structure. Now, the first point, of course, is that there are some elections where the uh, positions or some of the positions are nonpartisan, especially at school board levels and at some municipal levels, um, something that I wish was more common than it is. Um, many positions, of course, are not partisan. And these videos and my experience here is not really on navigating the party structure. Uh, that should be clear to any of you who are familiar kind of with my political history here. I've never been registered to or affiliated with a political party as a voter uh, or as a candidate. Um, and that's not where my experience really is. Although I've worked with political parties, if you're interested specifically in resources to navigate how to do that, for example, running for your local committee or county committee um, and going through that process, these videos are not going to provide the best um, experience there, because that's not my experience. So I'm talking about not needing to be part of a party to be able to do this. That is a little more in my wheelhouse. Now let's think through this a little bit. Let's think through what some of the things are that parties do provide before we try to determine whether they are or are not necessary for any given race. Um, And so a few things. So in a lot of election jurisdictions, being part of one of the major parties, usually the Democratic or Republican Party, uh, you get a line and ballot preference. Um, And so it's going to be easier for people to find you on the ballot. Uh, This, of course, is uh, something that is intentionally done by parties to make it more difficult Um, for elections to be competitive, um, for people to run off the line. New Jersey's particularly bad at this with how our ballots are organized. So that is a potential benefit that you do get um, by being involved with parties. Another one are all of the resources, and this is significant. This is access to fundraising resources or money directly into your campaign account, or being able to do a joint account or use a municipal or county party account, for example, campaign platforms uh, with voter files and voter data attached to them. Things like that are resources that, are, that, are, that come with a lot of value that parties do provide. Um, and so those are things that you're going to have to make up for on your own. Additionally, parties often provide a source of guidance and mentorship, not just on running for office, but once you're in office, um, providing direction and a framework for what you're supposed to vote on and how you're supposed to engage with the whole process. Um, That comes, of course, with some downsides, too, um, which I'll talk about more in a second, but don't underestimate the value of support networks. Uh, You're going to need to have one if you're thinking about doing this, and parties do provide one. Political support, social support, um, things like that. And so if you're going to be running without a party, make sure that you're aware where you're going to get that support from, because that is something that's really important. Um, It's it's really critical for your success. Um, Being able to have people that you can talk to, having people that you can bounce ideas off of, that you trust once you're in office, or during the campaign, really, really important. Um, Some of the sacrifices that come with joining a party, uh, for example, are that is largely your independence and ability to navigate this process in a way that is aligned exclusively or primarily with your own goals, right? All that guidance and mentorship is not free. There are expectations attached to the resources that are provided to you, and those expectations typically have to do with how you comport yourself when you're in office, how you vote on certain things, what initiatives you pursue, uh, whether you endorse and fundraise for other candidates, things like that. There are expectations that are on you that I would argue place a really significant burden um, on your ability to be independent. Um, and uh, and so it's really important to think about that and to think about some of the pros and cons of what you get or don't get from a party um, or from not joining a party going forward. But The general idea here is that you don't have to do this with a party. Now, certain election jurisdictions are going to be more difficult without a party. Certain will be easier, and that's something that you'll have to look at um, wherever you're thinking about running, looking at past histories of elections, of candidates, trying to chat with people maybe who have run for office off a party line before and seeing what their experience was like, looking and when you do your stakeholder map of your community um, early on in this process, and you're trying to identify Who are the different audiences that might be supportive of you or not supportive of you? Um, All of those things are important to think about um, as you uh, build the picture of whether uh, this will work for you in the way that you want to do it. But the important thing here is that it can be done without parties. It can be done by people from the outside. It will be harder um, and you will have to find those resources and you will have to fight an uphill battle most likely. Um, But just not being part of a party should definitely not discourage you. There are many people who run off the line or as challengers, um, myself included, uh, but many others in partisan elections where they're challenging an incumbent in a primary, and they do win. It is definitely possible. Um, So don't feel discouraged about that from the outset. Just think about practically what you need to replace, what what resources you're going to lose by not having that Um, what the consequences of that are, how you're going to make up for it. Okay, myth number two, I have to sell my soul or make promises to people that I don't want to. Now, there is no diminishing the fact that this dynamic uh, is an epidemic in our public institutions, that elected officials, political and government leaders have a complex web of business and personal and political interests that create pressure from entering, from everyone entering the system to do things that same way. But that way of doing things is just that. It's a way of doing things. Really, those people are playing a very specific game with very specific goals and incentives. And if you aren't playing that game, which if you're watching these videos or listening to this, many of you won't be playing that game, which is great then those incentives actually become a lot less important or relevant for you. So, for example, one of the things that I found was uh, really strange was um, when I was mayor, I also served as our emergency management director for uh, several years in South Orange, and we had uh, a number of storms, Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Sandy, this crazy snowstorm in October, and a handful of other really bad weather events. After Hurricane Sandy, uh, about 75, 80% of our community uh, did not have power. Um, And some of those, it took up to 10 to 14 days to get power back on for the last resident um, in South Orange. Um, And it was a really crazy experience, uh, something that was eye-opening to me in a lot of ways, uh, seeing the innards of our public safety and emergency management infrastructure Um, uh, that I saw a little bit again during COVID-19 as a business administrator and doing emergency management work, uh, that these infrastructures are actually not as solid and redundant and resilient as I thought they were, Um, and as one would expect considering the amount of money um, that we all spend on it. But beyond that, um, and a few other things that were just kind of really unprecedented about that experience uh, of kind of managing this municipal government after Sandy – one of the things uh, about the utility company specifically that was really strange was you know, there was a very antiquated ways of them collecting outage information um, that perhaps I'll get into in a video just dedicated to this because it was really kind of incredible in a bad way. Um, but one of the things that we were doing at a certain point was keeping track of outages in Google Spreadsheets. Some of this actually was not set up by us as the government. Um, but was actually set up by residents who started using a Google map to track outages. And we realized that what they were doing was actually more accurate than what the utility company was doing in some cases. So we started to use that information ourselves and get that information to our County Office of Emergency Management and try to get that information to the utility companies. And we included in that information all the data that we had about which houses were out and for how long, um, and also critical facilities, uh, multifamily like apartment buildings that might have seniors people with special medical conditions that required equipment to be plugged in, uh, service facilities such as municipal buildings, libraries, um, shelters, things like that. So all that information was included as what what we tried to pass on. But beyond that, what I got, and I had this interesting viewpoint because I was our emergency management director and our mayor, um, and each of those people had a different representative in different departments at the utility company, um, that as the mayor... Uh, one of the questions that I got asked on an uh, almost daily basis was, Mayor, are there any priority outages? Now, we had already sent all of the outage information with priorities for specific facilities, medical people with medical conditions, things like that. So these priorities were not a practical, functional emergency management priority. They were political priorities. They were, hey, Mayor, are there people whose power you need to get back on because of whatever reason. And I think we could probably guess some of those reasons. Um, and that really frustrated me, um, in that process. And there were people on that list. There were people who, um, you know, in South Orange who didn't have power, my parents included. Um, and of course I checked on them, you know, almost daily and made sure they were all right at home. Uh, but they were not going to get on that priority list. Nobody was. Um, I wanted them to do the outages in the way that was maximizing their resources to get power back on to the most number of people as fast as possible in South Orange, not divert resources for people that are, you know, complaining in my ear all day long. Um, But that's the culture, and there are many, many, many cases like that where we can just see the way that we do things, especially in New Jersey, is a lot about the politics, not as much about the evidence or the policy. But... You don't have to do things that way. Um, And I know I didn't do it that way, and I know others didn't do it that way. Um, You know, I wasn't involved in fundraising for other elected officials near me. I didn't endorse people who I didn't have personal or working relationships with who I actually knew and wanted to endorse. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't really involved in that side of things. Um, And yeah. You know, you are going to ruffle some feathers uh, by doing that. But let's be honest, some of those feathers need to be ruffled. These kinds of dynamics need to get some pushback. um, And the pressure isn't quite as bad as it seems. Now, even though it's entirely possible to navigate this process without getting yourself stuck by feeling indebted to a person or an interest group, it does require some pre-planning you do need to have some frameworks in place. For example, if you want to do that and you're in a place that has a strong political machine, like a lot of New Jersey, you've got to have some financial security or have a job that is unrelated to your politics because that is an area where you are going to find some consequence potentially, right? If you don't get involved in this the right way, you may not be able to get the kind of contracts that you want. In some places, you may even find political machines that attempt to maneuver, manipulate in ways to negatively impact your work. So you've got to have that stuff figured out. Um, And you want to have frameworks on how to approach situations that may arise. So here's another example. Um, In South Orange, at one point, we were uh, soliciting proposals for a redevelopment project um, that was in our downtown. Really exciting. It was a parking lot uh, before with a rescue squad building that was horribly not um, uh, up to the needs of the volunteer agency, um, and we wanted to redevelop it, uh, turn that parking lot into new housing that would be a for the community, help offset the taxes that people already were paying, provide a new home to the rescue squad, provide more parking for people to come to the train station and build our first on on-site affordable units and try to build the building sustainably, which we ended up doing. Now, this is a really cool project, really big. It's called Third and Valley. Um, it was about a uh, $64 million project. So you can imagine, you know, the proposal process was competitive. Um, and as we had an RFP out, at one point, I, uh, uh, one of the developers, one of the uh, bidders, not bidders, one of the people um, uh, proposing, sending in a proposal for this project, wanted to talk with me about the project. So I talked with our attorney and administrator um, about what I can and can't talk about, but felt comfortable that I could navigate this and met with the person um, uh, about the project to provide information that basically was information that we provided to all of the, uh, bidders, um, or all of the people that were interested in proposing, um, putting their company's proposal forward on this project. So I met with this person and anyway, the long story short is the end of the meeting, they said something, uh, basically along the lines of, oh, and hey, uh, you have a web design company, right? Uh, my buddy needs a website done for his company." Um, you know, can I introduce you to, to, to work on this? And I knew immediately, you know, that raised a red flag for me, right? I had already thought ahead of time and already knew that, uh, that wasn't going to work, uh, because I did not want to know someone who was bidding on a project where I'm a mayor of that, of, of that community in which they are bidding on a project where I'm going to be making a decision about what contract to award to whom I could not know someone on that front and on a business front at the same time. That was not something that I was comfortable doing. Um, and so I told him that. And I said, look, you know, here's the deal. We've got these two tracks that we know each other right now, one with you as a developer bidding on this project and the other with you uh, knowing me as an owner of a consulting company that builds websites. Um, and I said, I'm not gonna choose for you, but you've gotta choose one of these or the other, but it can't be both. Um, and it definitely, uh, miffed the person, um, but they ultimately chose the developer route, which was the one, um, I, uh, I expected, uh, the company didn't end up ultimately getting the project, um, but that was, uh, easy for me to navigate because, um, or, you know, a really potentially complicated situation because I had already thought about all that ahead of time. I already knew that I wasn't going to be playing these games the way everybody else seems to be doing. You know, I wanted to be independent, and so no way would I mix things up in that in that fashion. Um, and so that's just something that you need to think about. But had I been interested in navigating traditional political processes, turning that person down like that uh, probably would have produced some negative results, um, some additional repercussions. People in the political world, for whatever reason. Uh, that we'll discuss maybe a little more later, um, seem like they like taking vengeance out on people who don't do things the way they want to. Um, But it's important to realize that you don't have to do it that way. You know, People only make those promises because they are constantly raising money for re-election and they have a business that's tied to what they do in the government. All of these different webs of things. And if you're not doing it that way, and that's not what your goals are, then you don't need to play that game quite as much as people think that You do. Number three, myth number three. I can't run because people uh, who run the government don't look like me. This is a big one. This is one of the toughest, biggest problems that we have uh, on a bunch of different levels. First, it is a problem that the government doesn't really reflect the demographics of the United States. This isn't just at the national level, this is at a lot of levels on down. Young people are highly underrepresented, especially in the federal government, as are women and people of color, just to name a few. There are perspectives on issues that we are working on that are just missing from the conversation because these voices aren't at the table, Um, and that reduces the quality of the solutions that we produce. But it's sort of a cycle because I've heard from many who fall in groups that aren't well represented in government that they don't feel comfortable running for office because the groups they identify with aren't in there and they don't feel like the process is set up for them. And to a certain extent, unfortunately, they are right. Some of those processes aren't really set up for them now. People are trying to exclude certain types of people from government. That is very real and happening in liberal states and conservative states all over the country. doesn't matter the party There are different people in different places that the people in power attempt to keep out of power. Um, But on the other hand, when you really think about the government that we have in the United States um, that was created by the United States Constitution, um, the beauty of this system is that it was built in part to scale and evolve over time, and it has done so over time, bringing more people into the process, albeit slowly and not without an enormous amounts of pushback and sacrifice at different points, but that is a core concept built into how our government um, is put together. The mechanisms that produce change are very slow and inefficient, and sometimes they fail, but our government is built to accommodate changes within the government over time. right? We don't have to overthrow the government um, and install something new every time we want to change something. That ability to change is built within the government itself. Um, And that's something that's really important, I think, to keep in mind. And now, I'm saying all of this as part of a demographic group that has been pretty well represented in government. Yes, there are parts of my identity um, and core beliefs that are highly underrepresented in government um, and receive a lot of pushback. But there's always been plenty of white guys. That much is there's no debate there. Um, and being young, for example, um, is not quite the same as some of the other um, identity groups that I've mentioned, um, as far as how you get pushback and how you may be underrepresented and the dynamics and power dynamics of all of that. So I say all of that with this context, of course. Um, and, but having worked with many candidates who do fall into underrepresented or marginalized groups who did decide to run... I'd be lying if I said, I mean, if it takes courage to run for office already, but it especially takes some courage to run from an underrepresented or marginalized group. Um, it definitely does. But we need more people like that, not just to help provide perspective for some of the voices that are missing in the conversation, but because we need people who have that courage to be in government. One of the traits that I would argue, and I think many of us would argue is severely lacking from uh, many people who are in government is courage. Um, and so we need to self select better in the types of people who run for office and get more people who are willing to really stand up for things that they believe are right um, and who are willing to, are able to bring their experience and their empathy and ideas to the table now to a certain degree, there's going to be some really real challenges in, in certain political environments being of a different race, gender, age, religious belief, sexual orientation, or anything else like that, whether it's a kind of demographic identity or a belief identity. Um, and I don't have anywhere near the space in this video to get fully into all of those issues. I would be not doing all of that justice, but I guess I just want to say on a broad level that if you feel like you don't belong because the group that you belong to are underrepresented in government, I would argue, and I think many would agree, um, that this system was built exactly for you, a government designed to evolve over time um, and to be pushed in directions by people who previously weren't in it. Um, And, you know, we have a system of government that in part of its its the framing of its founding, a part of that was not just saying here's what we're doing now, but was setting aspirational goals for the future that we need to um, that we need to help realize. Um, and I hope that no matter what you see or hear from some of the people who want to maintain problematic and exclusionary power structures, that you can see that being in leaders in a, in a leader that you being in a leadership position in government is a right that you have as much as any other person does, um, and don't let anyone tell you or make you feel otherwise. Um, I understand that that is way easier said than done, um, and that there are some people out there who will go to great lengths to keep certain types of people or people with certain beliefs uh, out of the government. And you need to be really carefully aware of these dynamics wherever you're thinking about running before you do so, um, because there's a lot to consider here. Um, And so, uh, but there are some practical resources um, also um, that I really suggest that you take advantage of um, as you explore this question, um, and certainly if you decide to move forward. And these are largely organizations and networks of people who may be going through similar things. Um, and having that so- a really solid support network, um, especially from others who've done this before, from organizations that work with a bunch of different people who do this, um, that's really important. Hearing about other people's experiences can be valuable. Having that network to lean on can be valuable, especially if things get more tricky or difficult as you uh, go down this path. Um, and if there aren't support networks like this in your area, I'm going to include a, um, a link to some of these in the uh, description uh, and show notes on my website, um, but consider starting one if there's not one there and reaching out to others. And even if it's just three people who are meeting you know, once a week over the phone to talk about what they're dealing with, that could be really, really valuable. So uh, I know it's easier said than done. I know I'm saying this from a particular context that I have, but... Uh, I really hope that if you feel like there are some that are trying to keep you out um, of government, that pushing back on those kinds of exclusionary beliefs is something that I really hope that you can do. Um, I really hope that all of us are able to do that more. Um, It's really important. And again, myself and so many people um, really believe That if you're underrepresented, uh, if you're part of an underrepresented group, that this government is built just as much for you as it is for for anybody else. And and I really hope you don't let people make you feel otherwise. Um, I can't do a better service to this issue in a short piece here, but I did want to say this um, and hopefully provide a little bit of support um, or encouragement. Um, Okay. Myth number four. I've got to be wealthy or know people with a lot of money to run. Campaigns are expensive. Now, campaigns can be expensive, especially when you start getting into some of the really much bigger races. Statewide elections, for example, um, You know, uh, some congressional elections, some large city races can be really expensive. Um, and it can be a challenge to raise money, especially if you're coming in from the outside. However, sometimes there's opportunities. Um, for example, if you're running independently, you might be able to raise money from people from both political parties or who are not affiliated with a party rather than only calling people that are registered to your party or have donated to your party before. Um, But you can also run campaigns, especially on some local levels, much, much cheaper than you think. Really, one of the things that money in campaigns buys is it's an indirect vehicle for contact with voters, right? You are taking that money in and with that money, you are paying people to canvass You are buying advertising time, um, and that might include TV or radio or internet or mail, but each of those things, right, you're using that money to get your campaign in front of people. To some degree, you can trade this a little bit. You can move a dial and say, okay, well, instead of spending money on all this, I'm going to spend more of my time. I'm going to recruit more volunteers. We're going to be really aggressive about A volunteer campaign where people are really familiar with the issues and familiar with the campaign and are going out there talking to voters and where you're making calls every day and knocking on doors um, and using your time really efficiently. Now, the caveat of that, of course, is that for you to spend a lot of time on it, you need to be financially secure in being able to take that time. Understand that some of this is going, and we get into this in the next episode, but some of this is going to require a lot of time for certain campaigns from some small local races. It might be a six-month-long campaign where the first couple months you're gearing up and the last couple months are like, you know, you're, you're doing it every day. But for like a statewide election, for a congressional election, for bigger cities, I mean, you might be spending a year or two years on your campaign with maybe half of that full-time um, or more. And so you've really got to think through what that election timeline looks like, um, and how much time you're going to be able to have based on your own financial situation. But if you can, if you can trade time, your time or volunteer's time, um, then you can reduce the amount of money that you spend. You may even have some volunteers. I know people who've run campaigns where they're renting or they own a house and they've got a handful of people instead of being compensated to work on the campaign are getting free room and board at the house. Um, there's different things that you can do to try and reduce the expenses um, and to try and be more efficient. Of course, running an organized campaign, managing it properly, using people's time efficiently, tracking data in electronic formats, not by paper, that you're actually using, that can also help improve the efficiency of your campaign. So yeah, it's helpful to have money that you can throw in. Sure, it's helpful to know people that can write max out checks to your campaign. Do you need it to be able to run? No. No. Not 100% of the time, for sure. Um, You just need, or go, like all of these different things, without that resource, you're just gonna need to do a little bit of extra due diligence to make sure you're really set up for success. Okay, myth number five. I can't run because I don't have any campaign experience. Not to worry. In fact, I might argue that we need more people who are not really political navigators and professional politicians to enter this space. I think a lot of people would actually agree with that. Um, And so not having campaign experience isn't really a problem. What you do need to keep in mind, though, is knowing your limitations and checking your ego. Um, You know, I was just uh, uh, watching a video about uh, outdoor camping, uh, hiking, survival, something that I I do a lot of um, in my free time, Um, and um, one of the tidbits, one of the lessons was keep your ego in check. If you're out hiking in the woods and you get lost, you have to admit it as soon as possible, right? The worst thing you can do, the worst, you know, versus not having a flashlight or a sleeping bag or something like that, the worst thing you can do is let your ego tell you that you aren't lost when you are, because as soon as you're lost, you have to start making preparations to spend the night and to get rescued or to find your way out, etc. You've got to keep your ego in check. If you don't know how to run campaigns, that's okay. But make sure you are aware of that. Make sure you are aware of where your knowledge and skill level is here. Um, and make sure then you're bringing in people who are going to be complementary to that. Right? If you have really strong campaign experience, you know, if you're running a local race, for example... Your campaign manager might be more of a project manager than a political consultant. If you have less campaign experience, that campaign manager is not only going to have to manage the people and all the operations of the campaign, they're going to have to be giving you as the candidate political advice on how you are uh, doing what you're doing as a candidate um, and your messaging and all these different pieces. Um, And so just be aware of where you're at in this and what you need. But it is not a problem to not have campaign experience. It is worth, if you're watching these videos, you're already doing some work ahead of time, it's worth doing that, for sure. Um, But don't let it stop you from thinking about doing this. You don't need campaign experience to run for office. Okay, next, myth number six. I don't want my private life to become public. Now, this is an interesting one, and there's a couple layers to this, but the broad strokes here are that You should feel comfortable putting your foot down in defining a boundary between your private life or your personal life and your public life. You should know that it is not the expectation, regardless of what you think people might think or people are telling you, you are not uh, prohibited from having a personal life as a public official. You do not give yourself up completely during that period of, of time. Depending on the jurisdiction you're in, uh, that I guess I should clarify that that is my belief um, of what is true, that you do not have to sacrifice that. There are some jurisdictions where the expectations are going to be different. Some places are going to be easier about those boundaries. Some places are going to be totally outrageous about them. You need to be clear about what you're going into before you go into it. But you should feel comfortable putting your foot down, and there are ways to do this that can kind of maximize your chances of success or can really hurt you. Um, so, for example, one of the things that I think, there's a couple things that are valuable in thinking about here. The first is thinking about um, how much you share with people about yourself. You know, when I ran in South Orange, I felt like I let people. I was kind of who I am. You know, once I was in office, I mean, I put a lot of stuff in emails and public records. I kind of talked the way I talk. Um, And I'm not really trying to hide who I am. Does that mean that I, you know, got emotional sometimes during council meetings? It does. But that's me. Um, And some of those things I worked on and some of those things I'm fine with, right? But I think that part of this is that we're so used to seeing politicians so polished and so performative that it's clear that they are hiding stuff. It's clear that they're not really saying things they believe in. It's clear that they are minimizing things about themselves and trying to show people a very narrow story of who they are. And I think people genuinely get that. They understand that in a lot of these cases, they are being bullshitted by this person. And so they want more information. They want to dig a little bit deeper. And unfortunately, that kind of culture then gets applied to everybody in this space. But I think you can push back a little bit here um, by, drawing these, uh, by drawing these lines um, a little bit and saying, here's, here's who I am. But I still believe that I get to have a personal life um, and a private life. Now, some people will not respect those lines. Let's say you're in a community. Most people respect those lines, but some people don't. There will always be some people who don't. In South Orange, for example, I had, there was maybe two or three or four, maybe four people at its peak, uh, some of whom were affiliated with one of our former council members who really... um, really went kind of berserk on me. They created fake social media accounts. They stalked me online, always putting in public records requests. For example, that council person on occasion would request emails, my emails, that mentioned his name to see what I might have been saying about him or not um, while we were on the council together. Um, And others, you know, they created these fake social media accounts where every person who followed me on Twitter... You know, they would follow that person and pretend to be me and say outrageous things. Uh, they would edit my Wikipedia page to make it look really bad and say all this crazy stuff about me. Um, like, they, you know, they they at one point, one of them created a website that was like something like the truth about Alex Torpy dot, I don't know what it was, blogspot or something dot com. And he, you know, put all this crazy stuff on there that was like total lies that nobody else in the community believed Um, and never really mattered in any way. But it was hard for me seeing that. It was hard for me seeing accusations, seeing someone making fun of me because I have student loans, making fun of me because I could barely afford to be in office and move back in with my parents my last year as a mayor. Kind of a funny and kind of an embarrassing thing, but it's the truth. And uh, a lot of young people are in that situation. And so it's hard seeing those things, but it's also important to remember, and I'm going to talk more about this at the end, of where those people are coming from. But it's important understanding, in my community in South Orange, people didn't really put up with that on a broader level. It didn't really... There was a few people who did those things, but it never was done in the newspaper. Uh, you know, uh, once that one council person wasn't on the council anymore, never came up in council meetings, people barely ever even came to s- say any of those things in a, you know, those people who are, you know, keyboard, what do we call them, keyboard warriors, they didn't even come to the council meetings. I mean, it was really constrained to just looking at a few things online, and that was where that information existed, and it, it, it hurt me, and at one point, there was a discussion of whether it involved law enforcement about the stalking, um, because they started to say something about um, my family, which to me was a cutoff point, and um, uh, we didn't end up pursuing that. Um, but, uh, you know, you gotta be prepared for what may or may not happen here and the dynamics in your community. Again, I'm lucky because I was in a community that didn't really take that. They didn't really play into that so much. So these people sort of spun themselves out and it didn't really matter beyond that, but it was still hurtful to see those things and really caused me a lot of uh, emotional distress, uh, which I can admit now, but was difficult, really difficult at the time. Um, and I started kind of realizing that, and again, I'm going to come to this later in this episode, but um, it's not a reflection on you, those things, at all. But you've got to understand the dynamics because there are some communities that, again, that will protect you, defend you against people who do those things, and certain communities that won't. Um, and you need to be aware of how you can or can't engage with that. Um, do, if you're you know, controversial and running on the school board and you've got a kid in the schools, is that going to affect them at all? Um, and certain communities... You may, you need to think about how this escalates, potentially, if it does. You know, can you or can you not access the resources of law enforcement in your community um, to help protect you um, if you need to? Uh, these are questions that hopefully won't matter, um, but are worth thinking about. And in some communities are going to be more relevant than in others. So just make sure you think about that. But let me reel this back for a second. So first is that the first point I was making is that it, you, sh- I believe, and I think a lot of people would agree, you have the right to draw some boundaries here. You have a right to go out to dinner and not have people in your face. But the way to minimize that happening, for example, is by being transparent and accessible in how you govern. Um, and you know, it's not just about showing people kind of who you are and letting your personality out a little bit um, and not kind of hiding that from people so that you don't make people want to investigate farther, but it's also in actually governing. If you win and you're in office, governing effectively and governing transparently. Um, One of these things that um, you you have to be aware of is that there's a lot of people out there who don't trust elected officials for good reason, including at the local level. I mean, I've worked for mayors who did not do this well. They hid a lot. They performed a lot. And people picked up on that, and they didn't quite know what thread they were pulling on, but they knew there was stuff that they were not being shown, and so they kept pulling these threads. Um, and that wasn't just about personality. That was about policy. That was about budget information. That was about ordinances that were being adopted. That was about public comments. It was about all sorts of things. And if you're not transparent in all of those other areas, but you expect people to give you the benefit of the doubt in your own personal life, you know that is a little bit inconsistent, I would argue. If you have expectations of keeping your personal life personal and your public life public, then it is incumbent on you to do a really good job at being transparent with people in your community in how you govern. That is totally doable, and I would argue you should be doing that regardless. That's an important value and an important way to govern more effectively and actually get things done better. But again, if you do that transparently and you're able to build that trust in your community, it's going to be a lot easier to push people back in some other areas. Um, so that's really worth thinking about. Myth number seven. I'm an introvert or not like an aggressive alpha personality, uh, and this isn't for me. Oh boy, do I hear you. So I am a, uh, an INTJ, if you're a uh, myers Brigger. Um uh and if and I know that there are not many people who are introverted that run for office. Um and in fact there are a lot of people out there who, you know, I think the people who know the people who know me well, my close friends, family, they know that I am introverted. I spend a lot of time alone um and a lot of time disconnected from cell phones and internet. Um and that allows me to sort of um kind of get back the energy that it takes to be in public. Um, because it's not, you know, you don't have to be extroverted to do this. Yeah, there's some skills that will be, uh, you know, more natural to you if you're a really extroverted personality, but I would argue that some of those skills, the politicking skills, that's not what we need anyway in government. We don't need people who are good at shaking hands and remembering a name. We need people who are good at diving deep into policy um, and understanding data and making strategic decisions. Um, But as an introvert, if you're running for office, you know, this is something that's going to be difficult for you. <clears throat> and it's worth thinking about how you're going to set yourself up for success in that regard. How are you going to take those breaks? How are you going to give yourself that space? Um, you know, you know I, when I was in office, I didn't do a lot of those things. Um, I didn't go to the big fundraisers and things like that. But I did go to a lot of panels and workshops and uh, conferences. But a lot of those were on I- areas that I was really interested in um and so talking to people about that stuff was was still even though it was exhausting it was also really energizing but i had to take that time off afterwards and had to give myself that space and so just be aware that you're going to have to do that for yourself you know how are you going to on a daily basis during the campaign after shaking hands and going to people's doors all day how are you going to sort of recoup from that and get ready for the next day but just remember that a lot of what running for office is is actually one-on-one conversations especially if you're doing this right and you're knocking on a lot of doors. And some of those conversations can be really fun and interesting, even for those of us who have a little bit of a harder time, um, you know, kind of being out there. But it's not all big group stuff. Um, and again, I think we have enough of the other type of personality in, in government. So uh, introverts definitely can run for office. Like a lot of these things that I'm mentioning here, you're just going to need to do a little extra due diligence to set yourself up for success. And again, check out the interviews that I have posted because I've got some interviews with some introverts running for office and we talk about this a little bit. Number eight, myth number eight, you can only really get power over time and I don't want to be a career politician. Well, this is a great one because I've got a really good um, kind of answer for you here to think through. Um, One of the biggest assumptions that people make about politics is that you get more power over time. And although that's true to some degree and in certain legislative bodies, especially that used to be more true than it is, that getting seniority would get you better committee assignments and things like that. It's not as true anymore. And it's not as true for every type of office. I argue that it's more like a bell curve um, and that you have a lot of power. If you do not run for office again, you lose your power in the middle. Um, as you have to do all the compromises to get yourself to that end point, and then you gain some power again at the end because you've kind of already done it, and you can, you know, burn some of those bridges at that point if you want to, for example. Um, so, let me talk about a, a way to think about this that not a lot of people think about. This is a service model. So, I believe in a service model over a career model for being in government. And what the service model means is that running for office is actually pretty similar to service opportunities. Um, many that we find young people do in very high numbers. Teach for America, the Peace Corps, the military, things like that. Really, really similar to what we are talking about here, and here's why. During the experience itself, you are not going to earn a lot of money, or you may earn no money. Um, and that is consistent across all of those experiences. <clears throat> Number two The experience is going to be really stressful um, and challenging and sort of unprecedented and in some cases risky. But two really cool things. One is it allows you to make an impact in the community that you're serving right now, something that being in elected office gives you an incredible access and ability to do, to actually make change in your community. And two is that you're going to learn all sorts of things about yourself new skills, meet people in different networks, all of these things that are going to be ridiculously valuable for you later on in life. One of the reasons why I'm able to, be, uh, to do a good job as a business administrator or as a consultant working with municipalities is because I've gone through the process myself um, and did so in a way where I was sort of soaking everything up and learning everything I could and took a lot out of those experiences. So it can be really, really valuable later on but it is going to be a sacrifice during the period of time that you're in there, and it's a finite period of time. When I ran for office, not a ton of people know this, but before I got sworn in, I put my last day in the calendar. I had no intention of running for a second term, although I was, I was open to the conditions maybe changing that would uh, you know, make me want to do that. I imagined. Winning like the mega millions lottery and having so much money that I didn't have to worry about work stuff at all, and I could just spend full time doing mayor stuff. That was a scenario I would consider, I would have considered doing a second term um, versus having to split my time between being in public office, doing the rescue squad, being in graduate school, and working, um, running my company, and teaching. I mean, it's just too much um, to do that for eight years. And so I knew that going in, that I only wanted to do it for four years, um, and I set my sort of strategic plan for what I wanted to accomplish based on that. So it was a finite period of time. I knew when it was going to end, and I knew that, and I did. As soon as my term ended, I'll I'll tell a quick story here. So um, the person who uh, did get sworn in as the mayor in South Orange did get elected was someone who I had worked with previously and helped run for a council seat two years prior And when she got sworn in as mayor, it was very exciting. She was the second youngest um, to be elected in South Orange and the first uh, female in the position, which was long overdue um, in South Orange. So it was really exciting um, to get to do that. And I remember swearing her in. And then, you know, she went up on the dais and I went to the back of the room. And uh, there was a guy back there who, like, turned around and looked at me. And then he kind of looked up at the stage and looked at me again. He said, you know, between you and Sheena, I don't know which one of who is smiling more right now. And I could say, it's me. I, you know, I've been in that position. Now I'm done. Uh, I'm smiling ear to ear right now. Um, and I, uh, the next day it was raining. The next day after that, packed up my motorcycle, left South Orange, turned off my phone um, for a couple days, and then went, spent a couple months traveling in Spain, uh, in East Africa, in South Africa, Botswana. Uh, after that, so I was gone for a couple months. After that, uh, really disconnected. Um, had really transitioned everything over. Felt really good about leaving everything kind of in good hands. That last month being in office was like senior year in high school after you've been accepted to college already because I'd already moved all the projects off to other people um, for the most part. So it's totally doable, totally doable to do one term or two terms. It's not a career necessarily. Number nine, myth number nine, I am not qualified or experienced enough to actually be in office and govern. Well, let me ask you a question. Are the people who are qualified and experienced enough doing a good job I don't think so. And I think most people agree with that. Now, I'm not saying there aren't qualified and experienced people in government doing good things, but I am saying that many of the qualified and experienced people who have the resumes or pedigrees that they're supposed to have in politics, they are doing a truly embarrassingly terrible job at this. Um, They are making decisions based on protecting their ego, responding to their emotions, forwarding personal or business interests refusing to accept or listen to critical feedback, making decisions without complete information. I mean, there is a long list. That's all real and happening at every level of government throughout the United States. You are already better than that by doing some of the due diligence that you're doing here. You can easily do better than most of those people. Not all of them. There's, again, some really great people, but most of the people are not doing a good job. And the results of that should be clear in the conditions around us. So don't feel like they are, just because they're older, just because they've got bullet points on their resume, a lot of these people have no idea what they are doing. Do not let that discourage you. That doesn't mean that you should go in having no idea what you're doing. That means that you, if you create the space for yourself to study these things, to really understand how to do a good job here, that you really could do an exceptionally good job. Um, And... Um, having the most experience isn't necessarily the important thing. You know, if you have creative ideas, if you're representing an opinion or perspective that isn't there, if you have a way to solve problems that other people don't, all these different things could be really valuable. Um, And don't forget that we have, you know, young people doing really incredible things. We send young people overseas we, these young people that manage really big companies. There's all sorts of really amazing things that young people do. Um, we've got 16 year olds on the rescue squad who do incredible things for people, save people's lives. I think we can allow some 20, you know, somethings to run for office. And when I talked to people about that, when I ran, people often had questions like they laughed at me and said, you know, I didn't have this beard back then. I looked quite, quite a bit younger even then. Um, and I said, you know, they laughed and, I said, you know, how old are you? Um, I said, I'm 23 years old. And I said, do you mind if, you know, I asked why you're asking me that. And I said, well, you know, this is a whole town. Like, you know, should someone really be this young, you know, in charge of it? I said, well, first of all, we've got six council members who all are much, much, much older uh, and have all that experience. And so I'm not trying to replace all of them. I just want to bring my perspective in also. And I want to take some of their things into account. Um, But I want to be in the position to make some of these decisions. Um, And I said, also, think about what we allow young people to do. Think about um, um, the rights that people get when they turn 18. Think about young people overseas. Think about young people running billion-dollar tech companies. Um, Like, there are young people doing all sorts of things. Um, And maybe the people that are there, the things that you've used to vote for those people in the past, experienced with some bullet points on a resume, Those things are actually not working that well. So maybe it's time for something different. Now, what's tough here, too, is that what research shows is that men tend to be overconfident about this and women tend to be underconfident in these sorts of situations. It's really worth being aware of those predispositions. If you're feeling like, oh, this is no problem, you're listening to say, that's not a myth. I can do this job, no problem. Okay, you may want to check that. This is not easy. Really be honest with yourself about your strengths and weaknesses here. That is critical before going forward Um, but also if you're feeling not motivated not qualified think realize too that that may be a predisposition of uh cultural dynamics and biases um and that you are actually able to do it um and so think about it from both of those directions kind of depending on where you're at um and just realize that some of the things that you may be feeling about whether you can or can't do this are not actually about you They are biases you've inherited from broader cultural biases that exist in the United States. Okay, myth number 10. I don't really like politics. Running for office isn't for me. Oh boy, welcome to the club. There are a lot of people, though not enough people in government who don't like politics. We have enough of people who are trying to be Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright navigating this like house of cards. Right? We've got enough of people who think about government as a game that they can win with sides where one side is better than the other side and where competition and beating people is like the name of the game. We've got enough of those people. Um, and I don't really follow politics the way that a lot of people expect that I do. I follow history. I follow government. I follow finance administration. I follow all sorts of different subjects. But like politics... Not really as much. I would argue that we spend way too much time on what is happening, the gossip about the insiders, and not as much time on the actual issues that we are dealing with here. Um, So really encourage you to uh, not allow that to discourage you because we probably need you there. And again, if you're not playing this political game like like many others are playing, then you don't really need to like politics. And again, I would argue that it's better if you don't. Because you'll focus in the areas that we need people to focus on, the actual strategic management of our public institutions and society. Okay. Myth number 11. I won't be able to make a difference in the areas that I care about. I have got some real good news for you. You definitely can. The, let's just put it this way. We're gonna. And so in the third episode of this series, I'm going to cover this in a lot more detail. So I would definitely uh, check that out if you haven't. Um, but let's think about things this way for a second. We're, and I'm not really talking about federal offices much. Um, I'm really talking about state, county, local. There are 2 million federal government employees. Right? That's the apparatus of the federal government. There are more than 20 million state and local government employees in the United States. That is a huge infrastructure that does a lot of things. I mean, local governments are doing your emergency services, your, often your police, your fire, your EMS, your emergency preparedness, flood mitigation and control, weather preparedness. Often you're doing schools or you're working with a school board or school district. You're doing recreation and outdoor preservation of open space. You're doing redevelopment and downtowns and economic support for businesses. Uh, You are doing environmental and sustainability issues. You're doing fire prevention and zoning and urban planning and community development. You are doing libraries and access to public information and resources. You might be doing social services. You might be working on homelessness issues. Uh, You are doing, obviously, all of the priorities laid out in the budgets of these governments. Um, There are so many things at the local level that touch transportation and housing um, and so many things. Um, There's more that can be done at the local level even than it seems. Um, There's a lot there, um, and I encourage you to uh, check out the third video to dive into that a little bit more. But the cool thing about the local level especially, but especially not the federal level, state or local level, is that you have the ability to change those areas. You can actually implement a change, whereas at the federal level, you're kind of lobbying for stuff that may or may not ever get done, and the apparatus of the federal government is so gigantic and so complicated. Um, At the local level, you could just make a change sometimes. You can change the way things really work in a community um, on all of those different areas, Um, and uh, that can be really, really rewarding, which is going to take me to the next myth. Myth number 12. People are mean, um, and local government or public service is a thankless job. So let me start with this. People can definitely be mean, and you will probably encounter some of this. I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, especially if you're coming from an underrepresented demographic or social group, or you're challenging people that are in power, um, in the place that you're running in. There are those people out there, and, um, Dealing with this is not going to be easy. And I know I certainly do, do a great job of engaging with this. Um, as I started out, I engaged with some of those people too much, and that just adds fuel to the fire. Um, but at this point, certainly, after many years of doing this and doing this in multiple different towns, try to ignore and forgive those people. To just be direct about it, many of those people, the really mean people slinging hate Uh, they are being driven by very deep emotional instability. Um, There is absolutely no way to rationalize the kind of negativity and hate that people can unleash, especially people they don't actually even personally know, and especially people who have stepped up to try to help make their community work better. Yeah, there are politicians that deserve our disapproval for sure, no doubt, to be generous but there is a bad culture of negativity beyond that that does exist, and it's very personal in some places. But just try to remember that in a lot of these cases, in all of these cases, I might argue, it actually isn't about you. It is about them and their own mental and emotional issues that they are transposing onto the world around them. They have a problem or a need to lash out at others like that because of feelings of powerlessness or irrelevance other trauma in their lives or other issues they have that, that bring up all sorts of biases about race or gender or age or other, other things like that. And that is their problem. Uh, that is not something that you did wrong. And I would say do not take it personally at all. Um, now, there are cases, like I mentioned before, where some of that can escalate and you and you need to understand how you can engage with authorities in your area um, if something like that happens. It's not that common, um, but it is a possibility. But outside of that situation where you have to escalate because you are physically in danger, just remember that these people are, these are their own issues. It's not about you. Don't take it personally. Now, you should definitely listen to people with constructive Critical feedback that might be negative, you have to allow that in. It's really important to take that really seriously. But the people who are bullying you, the people who are insulting you personally, the people who won't speak to you respectfully, who start out furious and anger and insulting and demeaning, you don't need to listen to those people. Feel free to give it a try in the beginning and see maybe some of those people you can turn to be more constructive and engaged, I tried to appoint some of those people on committees in South Orange. I tried to bring them into the process, uh, one in particular on some transportation issues, and the person refused to join the committee after complaining about me on this specific issue about transportation. And so it was kind of clear the person didn't want to you know, thoughtfully engage, they just wanted to hurl insults. That was much easier on the internet. Um, but have these frameworks in place. Um, understand the difference between someone giving you critical, constructive, negative feedback and someone who is lashing out because of some deep-seated problem that they have that they are targeting you for. Um, But allow yourself to not take that personally. Easier said than done. You need a support network here. You need people, not just that you can trust, but in your community to talk these issues through as they may happen. And you need to be aware when things cross a line um, and enter a space where you might have some physical harm and how you're going to deal with that um, or resolve that. Again, not very common, but it is not unheard of. So that is all stuff that is a harsh reality. I'd like to think that we can change these things over time, make these spaces better by having officials that are more open and engaging so people don't feel like they have to go crazy on them like that, but that's not where we're at right now. And it seems like it's actually getting worse in a lot of parts of the country, even in, in conservative communities in progressive communities, people are feeling victimized at all levels. Uh, people are feeling really angry and it is something that you've got to be aware of how you're going to handle. Uh, one tip is don't rely on the internet for everything. Um, and don't take it personally again. Now, uh, There is another side of that coin, which for some reason doesn't really get talked about, and I'm not really sure why. So I want to end on this because it's really, really important. Being a local elected official is incredibly rewarding and can generate an enormous amount of goodwill, generosity, kindness, and thanks from your community. I always hear this like thankless job thing, like, oh, being elected official is a thankless job. That was not my experience at all. Now, sure, there were people in my community who were not very nice, but like I mentioned, it was only really four or five people. Um, and the vast majority of people in the community, and we do get a negative response bias, so we hear from the negatives more than the positives, but the vast majority of people in the community did not do those things. And, you know, like after Hurricane Sandy, for example, we had all those power outages, you know, myself and a couple other people on various occasions, in- including the woman who ended up becoming uh, mayor later, you know, we went out and we knocked on doors and checked on seniors and people with, that we knew were on lists with me- uh, serious medical conditions. Um, we knocked on doors, checking on people. I remember nights in the rain, driving house to house, just seeing if people were okay with power out in the entire neighborhoods. I could not believe how kind people were in those kinds of settings, Um, and, and even though we were trying, we, you know, we don't control the power grids. We were trying to get the utility company to get things together. We're trying to get them to communicate better, but people appreciated these efforts. And actually we did surveys afterwards of hundreds of residents in our community through a bunch of community meetings afterwards. And what people found was, yes, they were frustrated with a lot of different levels of government and the utility companies, but they really appreciated the information that they were getting from us. Um, They really appreciated all of the municipal side of things, Um, and that was amazing. I mean, our public works department, I'll put a picture up here if I can find it, got flooded out um, from um, Hurricane Irene, Um, you know, like feet of water in the building. They had to move equipment out, tie things down, the break room got flooded, the furniture got destroyed. You know, I go online and ask residents to donate stuff down to the, the public works department for all the hard work that they do. You know, I think public works employees are some of the most underappreciated in government. Um, and people came out and donated furniture and things for the and a refrigerator, all these different things. And just the goodwill from the employees, from the I mean, it was amazing. And I spent a lot of time meeting with people around town, not just because I was self-employed. So I had my company and I did my work at the local Starbucks a lot or other businesses around town or from the Rescue Squad, where I'm coming to contact with people all the time as a volunteer EMT. But I met with people, committees at the library, civic associations like the Rotary Club, um, churches and houses of worship, worship, real estate associations, school clubs, professional associations and organizations, neighborhood associations, student groups at Seton Hall, business owners through our Main Street and our Improvement District, supporters and volunteers at our Performing Arts Center, um, the volunteers who clean up parks and open spaces, historic associations, racial and social justice organizations that at one point that same council member um, I mentioned actually tried to defund, parent-teacher organizations, so many more. All these different groups I'm engaging with throughout my four years. I mean, I've got cards and boxes upstairs from people that thanked me for coming to talk to their group. Like, it was amazing the outpouring of support. And oftentimes when some of that group of four or five negative people would put some really nasty stuff online, I would get letters from people and emails and messages, people saying, don't listen to those people, they don't represent anybody in town, it's just them, like, don't worry, you know, we're here, we support you, we don't think those things. Um, And there was an enormous amount of that, like so much of it. I think people saw that I was really working hard, trying to do a good job. Um, trying to do things in the community that were for the benefit of the community, not for the benefit of myself. Um, and people responded accordingly. People were really, really kind. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, like when I announced I wasn't running again, I mean, people tried to, people tried to convince me for the year prior to do so because I think they could tell I was kind of getting up to the point of making a decision. I mean, it was really wonderful. I felt really supported most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time by most people in my community, many of whom did reach out with specific nice things to say on a regular basis. Um, I remember there was one particular day that like, there was some drama going on on our uh, governing body that had to do with that one council member I've mentioned a few times. Um, And um, the... um, There was some drama that was really stressful, really frustrating. I remember going to speak to a second and third grade class. um, And actually, out of that, there was a a young girl asked me a question um, that uh, really struck me. Um, And so we're, you know, doing different questions. And people are like, really, these kids are really great, knowing more information than some of these council members do about how government works. Um, uh, And one girl asked me a question. She was really excited. You know, had her hand raised up, like, you know, all the way up. Really wanted to ask me a question. So called on her. And she's, like, looking down at her note card and looks up at me and says, can a woman be mayor? And I was, like, taken aback because I wasn't really expecting that question. I mean, I don't know. In this community that is so, you know, has, is such a diverse community, South Orange and Maplewood, uh, such a diverse school district, I, I, I don't know. I just was surprised to hear that and reminded me that we really have farther to go on these issues than I think, even in communities that believe they're doing a better job. So I kind of got myself together there and said, um, you know, that yeah, there are some there are some challenges that are left over from history about women running for office, but absolutely you can do it if you show people that you want to do this for the right reasons, if you're willing to work hard, if you've got good ideas. There is no reason you, a woman can be mayor the same way a man can be mayor. Absolutely. And when I said that at the end and said absolutely it can be done. I remember watching her. She did like this Tiger Woods like fist bump. I'm not going to do it right. But she was like, yes. And, uh, and it was just like, I mean, I was like swimming in my head after that because I was just like, I remember some moments from when I was younger uh, that really impacted me in the, um, about how I got encouraged in the future. Maybe I'll share those in another episode. And I was like, maybe I just was able to provide this for this person this whole life. I mean, what an amazing feeling. What a real contribution. Um, to do something like that outside of policy, outside of budgets and all of that stuff. And in fact, the experience was kind of so um, meaningful for me that I called the teacher afterwards and said, what I'd like to do actually is um, have this student come in um, and have her be like village president or mayor for a day. Um, And actually, you can find a video of this that I think is still on YouTube where she presided over the beginning of one of our governing body meetings Um, and her classes watched in the audience and her family watched live online um, from India, which was amazing. Um, really, really cool. Um, and the teachers and the parents and the students were also engaged after that. Um, and we did a few other uh, village present for days, and it was really nice, all those experiences. Um, and um, uh, I just say all of that to say, there are incredibly rewarding, incredibly generous, incredibly thankful people out there um, if you're making yourself accessible, if you're doing the job well, if you're showing people you care, um, there are a lot of people out there who will get engaged and will help support you in those efforts. So don't be discouraged by some of the meanies. They are out there. Um, don't take them personally. And just remember and realize that there are they, those people are way outnumbered by people who are kind, generous, empathetic people. You just need to make sure that you create the opportunities to connect with those people because left to buy the default, there will be a negative response bias, but it's not representative. And I would never trade this experience for anything. And most people I know that have been in office actually feel the same way, especially those of us in the younger generations. So I really hope this video has been helpful as an overview. Move on to the second video at this time, if you want to, where Aaron and I discuss some of the questions that you should be thinking about. Um, Make sure to check out the videos, uh, the interviews as well. Um, They're all on YouTube. They're all online on the website. Um, If you want to hear from some other people's experiences, hopefully this has helped provide you some things to think about for your experience in running for office. It's not going to be perfect in every single different place, but I really hope it's been valuable. And I really wish you luck um, in thinking through this. Please feel free to reach out to me uh, through my website or email or social media um, if you want to talk more or learn about any of these different areas. And again, Good luck thinking about all of this. Um, It is all much more doable than it seems. You just got to think about some of these important questions and you will set yourself up for success. So good luck um, and enjoy the rest of the videos. Hey everyone, Alex here. Thanks for checking out the first video in the nonpartisan special series on Running for Public Office. You can find the next videos, all of the interviews and the entire podcast on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, google and online at rethinkingwithalextorpey.com if you like what you heard please like share and subscribe to the podcast and don't hesitate to reach out to me with questions or feedback thanks again for listening